Well, good morning, everyone. And thank you for the great privilege of being here with you today to worship. While this is my first visit to Pittman Park Methodist Church, the fact that my friends Kathy Bradley and Abby Lasinski are members of the congregation makes me feel right at home. If you know them, and who doesn't, then you already have a solid sense of what Wesleyan College is all about. Smart, strong women of faith, community leaders with a heart for service, warm, funny, and gracious friends. Kathy and Abby are particularly active alumni. Kathy, a past president of our alumni association, and Abby, currently president-elect. And we are fortunate indeed to have them in the Wesleyan family. When Bill extended this invitation for me to deliver today's message, he noted that the scheduled lectionary passage was from 1 Samuel, the one you just heard, and he suggested that using that scripture as a text might make my remarks fall right in with your current series on three women of faith. I must confess that my first reaction to the notion of speaking on an Old Testament scripture was, quite simply, fear. For if you have heard anything about my background, you know that I have absolutely no credentials as an explicator of biblical texts. That considerable shortcoming, however, has never kept me, either now or in the past, from accepting invitations like this one. I have a good friend who describes me as unlicensed but enthusiastic when it comes to preaching, and I think that's a pretty fair assessment, so just bear with me. Um, At any rate, when I calmed down and had a chance to examine the scripture, I remembered Hannah and felt not quite so overwhelmed. Honestly, who could not be moved by this woman's story? Her circumstances were wretched. Unable to bear a child in a culture that really had no use for such a woman, and maybe even worse, sharing a husband with one who provoked her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Penina, the other wife, was no doubt jealous of Hannah because her husband, according to the text, on the day of sacrifice, after giving portions to Penina and her sons and daughters, would give a double portion to Hannah because he loved her. Even so, Hannah could not be consoled, feeling rejected by God. Hannah is certainly not the only barren woman in the Bible, and her story does have a familiar ring. We remember Sarah, the elderly wife of the elderly Abraham, But Hannah's story especially reminds me of Elizabeth, another childless woman who finally had a son, in her case, John the Baptist. After years of frustration at her childless state and her persecution by the other wife, Hannah presents herself to the Lord during one of the annual visits up to Shiloh to make a sacrifice. While the others are presumably off celebrating, Hannah prays fervently to the Lord, all the while weeping violently. She's asking for a child, a son, and it's always a son. There's just no getting around the essential patriarchy of the culture. Um, Hannah vows that if her wish is granted, she will dedicate the child to the Lord, consecrated and set apart to serve. Eli the priest sees Hannah and mistakes her distress for drunkenness. He thinks she's just been celebrating too much. When she explains her story, though, Eli says, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. Hannah is immediately overcome with joy and gratitude, confident that her prayers will be answered. She returns home with her husband, and in due time, a son is born. 
The son, of course, is Samuel, and Hannah, remembering her promise before God, is as good as her word. As soon as the boy is weaned, she takes him, the son she has waited so long to have, to the house of the Lord in Shiloh and turns him over to the priest Eli. In verse 26 of that first chapter, she says to Eli, As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I have made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Hannah can't know at this point that her son Samuel will have an important role in the story of God's people, will be the bridge between the tribal era of the judges and a unified Israel. He begins as a child in Eli's care, and by the time his story ends, Samuel will have anointed Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel. All Hannah can know is that she is giving up her precious only son to God. Any of us would completely understand if she exhibited a certain amount of sorrow in leaving her only child with Eli, but Hannah's far from bitter or sad about the deal she has struck. Verses 1 through 10 of the next chapter, chapter 2, contain Hannah's prayer, one that is filled with exultation and praise and thanksgiving. Just listen to these excerpts. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The Lord... His adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt in the power of his anointed. Hannah's prayer, a psalm really, is sometimes compared to the prayer of Mary that we read in the book of Luke. Without a doubt, both of them are prayers of faithful, godly women whose lives have been transformed for a greater purpose. Hannah, like Mary, has complete trust in the faithfulness of God, and she can only express her gratitude and her praise. There's more in this prayer, too. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. This sounds awfully like what Barbara Brown Taylor calls the upside-down kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. You know, the one where the last are first and the first are last, where the meek inherit the earth and the poor have the seats of honor at the banquet. That's not a terribly comforting thought if you're a winner by the world's standards, but Hannah had not been a winner. And she had just seen firsthand how God could take the biggest loser, a barren woman, and turn her into one who can say, my strength is exalted in my God, I rejoice in my victory. 
Hannah has known both the up and the down of that picture, and she is bursting with praise for her God. Hannah can't see what's down the road for her son or for Israel, although she does end the psalm by saying the Lord will exalt the power of the anointed, seeming to anticipate Samuel's role in the kingdom of Israel. At this point, Hannah also cannot know what's ahead for her, which is the blessing of more children, but still she is filled with thanksgiving. We are in the season now of thanksgiving, a wonderful time of the year, which may be the reason that Hannah's gratitude is the feature of the story that resonates most with me. Or perhaps it's because we've just recently celebrated Benefactor's Day at Wesleyan, a time when we not only honor those who have been generous supporters of the college, but also try to teach our students something about appreciation and thankfulness and giving back. That may be a strange notion for some of us, the idea that we have to teach a young adult about gratitude. But Hannah didn't start out with a completely grateful heart, did she? Indeed, she seems a bit of a whiner to me, feeling sorry for herself despite the efforts of her husband to assure her of his love, feeling as though she should be entitled to everything that she desires. And that's how some young women arrive at Wesleyan which, if I'm honest, is exactly the way I have felt um, at too many points over the years. With some maturity and experience, though, I have come to believe that gratitude for all the blessings of life in whatever form they take is the very foundation on which everything else is built. That's why we have made a practice of cultivating this attitude of gratitude among our students. Benefactors Day actually lasts for more than a week, beginning with students writing and then posting messages describing aspects of their Wesleyan experience for which they're most grateful. My favorite one is, I'm thankful and grateful for our amazing President Knox. (laughs) I made that up. They really didn't write that. (laughs) Scholarship recipients write personal letters of thanks to those who have created their scholarships. We share fun facts about the true cost of the education and how even small gifts help us defray the costs. The week is a series of lighthearted and fun celebrations, but we believe students are more informed and are learning the importance of having that grateful heart. Just this past Thursday during Statewide Georgia Gives Day, we had the pleasure of seeing some students make their very first ever charitable gifts and seeing them experience that giver's high, a sure sign of the grateful heart in action. What we are finding and what I absolutely believe is that genuine gratitude, like true faith, will out itself. The grateful heart will find, indeed must find, a way to express itself in both words and actions. Hannah, so thankful when God answered her prayers for a son, honored her bargain and gave her greatest gift back to the Lord. Her exemplary faith and her active commitment, both grounded in thanksgiving, certainly are worthy of emulation today. Again, though, this commitment to giving back doesn't just happen, which is the reason we at Wesleyan created the Lane Center for Service and Leadership more than a decade ago with a mission to nurture servant leaders by having them become involved in the community. One avenue is called Wow! A Day for Macon, which twice a year takes hundreds of students and faculty and staff 
out into the community in partnership with nonprofits all over Middle Georgia, learning about their challenges and trying to help find solutions. Another is the Lane Center Signature Program, Aunt Maggie's Kitchen Table, which serves at-risk children from one of Macon's largest public housing complexes. Now located on Wesleyan's campus and staffed by dozens of our students, Aunt Maggie's serves as a Saturday school where these children come to our campus, can hone their math and reading and computer skills, play and experience the wonders of the college's arboretum, learn about healthy lifestyles from our nursing students, and engage in lots of other activities like taking in an art exhibit that expand their views of the world. I have no doubt that our students and all of us gain much more than we give from experiences like this when we use our talents and our blessings in service to the world. You know what I mean, the excitement, the rush, the joy even about being a part of something bigger than we are. Like Hannah, we are led directly to praise, to witness, and even to more thanksgiving, bringing us full circle. Praise, witness, and thanksgiving are part of the Wesleyan experience, too. You knew there was a third point, right? Especially when one looks at our new Pierce Chapel that Kathy mentioned, completed just last spring. The absence of such a holy place on our campus to which we moved in 1928, has not deterred us from worshiping God or doing God's work during all those years. Certainly, though, we have been greatly enriched in just a few short months by the addition of this permanent home for worship, study, prayer, and celebration, which is also a visible and very important expression of the college's commitment to faith and service. Pierce Chapel is now a place of joy and praise, service and inclusion for our campus and beyond. The theme for our campus ministry programs this year is everyone around the table, and I can't think of a better one for our widely diverse student body. We are truly drawing the circle wide, trying to live out Jesus' great command to love God and love our neighbor. Our goal is that everyone will feel welcome at Pierce Chapel and will feel the embracing love of God, no matter what her religious tradition or lack of religious tradition is. Through Sunday evening chapel services, weekday services of praise and prayer, Bible studies, conversations, group projects, we are learning to listen both to God and to one another. Just this past week, Pierce Chapel was the venue for a special service of gratitude on Tuesday, a regular weekday chapel on Wednesday, which was based, by the way, on the story of Hannah, and which, sadly for you all, I missed. Um, Excuse me, and a Thursday Bible study about our friend Ruth that you've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks, for us, the third of a four-part series. Our hope, of course, is that we, too, are doing our part to educate women of faith, women who will develop grateful hearts, critical minds, and caring hands, and who will use them all to do God's work in a world in which people so often seem angry, divided, fearful, broken, and hurting. Well, that might just be the most important work that we do. This great church, too, 
is filled with women and men of faith who serve as models of Christ-like living for us all. And I'm exceedingly grateful for the great connection that we share with you and with other United Methodist churches throughout our conference and our state. You are no doubt raising the youth of this church to be faithful servants as well, in part with your own inspiring examples. And surely you all knew wonderful women of faith who inspired you along the way. I could add several names to such a list, beginning with my grandmother, the wife of a Methodist minister, and the mother of four daughters, all of whom were Wesleyan graduates. Hers was not a life of ease or one without misfortune and loss. Two of those daughters died in their 50s, as did her husband, and my grandmother lived to be 101. But like Hannah, she was faithful and always filled with praise and thanksgiving for her Lord, beginning each day with the psalmist's words, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not trusting myself to remember that sentiment naturally, I have taped that verse to my bathroom mirror. But I, too, try to begin each day with that spirit of gratitude, knowing that I will be much more productive and much more joyful if I do. While I often fall short, I know lots of young women are watching me, and that's a pretty powerful motivator. As women and men of faith, we rejoice in the lessons of the Bible including the indelible witnesses of Naomi and Ruth and Hannah, who show us what can be accomplished with loyalty, resourcefulness, prayer, commitment, and gratitude. We rejoice in the examples of those in our community, too, and we gain hope in the knowledge that young lives are continuing to be nurtured with a spirit of thanksgiving and service and praise. May the stories of these biblical women and the stories we hold in our hearts inspire that same spirit within us each day as we join with Hannah in saying, My heart exalts in the Lord. Amen.